0: Okay, hi um, everyone, uh, James here. This afternoon, I'm delighted to have Timothy Wilcox with me. Um, I'll let him introduce himself before I get into what we're gonna be talking about this afternoon. Over to you, Timothy.
1: Uh, thank you very much, thanks for having me. So yeah, so Timothy Wilcox. Uh, so I finished a PhD in English last year from Sunnybrook University. Uh, and so I work um, mainly in, in British romanticism and sort of digital era literature. And, and so I, I've, I have an essay in cyberpunk and visual culture on uh, the comic, the surrogates and a, a recent publication on William Wordsworth's poetry leading into um, interactive fiction, the particularly sort of puzzleless interactive fiction um, at, that's available freely online. If you want to check that out um, and see, so, yeah, so I've been working on a, Sort of online content, and then I'm trying to lead off this literature in the C course, but um, it's, a, it's a, a sort of co-learning experience that's sort of outside of my usual expertise.
0: Yeah, great. Um, and this afternoon, Timothy and I are going to be uh, discussing cognitive dissonance and negative capability, mm-hmm. uh, British Romanticism, the interface between narrative and the internet, and. A little bit about Timothy's course. So usually I, I like to start these discussions Tim with um, what I call the primitive accumulation question which is where I ask people to think about two kind of ideas which clash in their head and cause cause a bit of brain melt so to speak and um, when we were discussing this before, um, you came up with the idea of negative capability, which is not something that I'd come across before. And it sounds absolutely fascinating and also links in with the, the B- British romanticism and the romantic poets. So I'd, I'd really be interested to, if you could tell us more about what neg- negative capability is.
1: Right. Yeah. So, so this is something I, I mentioned. I wanted to talk about as a, in a broader sense of one way of thinking about, um, cognitive dissonance where so the romantic poet john keats presents this idea in a letter that uh, you know certain poets like william shakespeare excel through what he calls a negative capability where they are comfortable existing in these states of uncertainty mystery that they're comfortable uh, operating in the state of half knowledge and, and to produce works that that sort of reflect that as well. And so it's in part emerging out of this, this context where you have through the enlightenment, this obsession with rationality and and reason and sort of forming these sort of, uh, systems that try to understand as much as possible. And for the poet John Keats, what he he's interested in is, these sorts of more elusive qualities like beauty. And so he, he upholds that over this idea of absolute knowledge. And so what he's, he's interested in is, is these ways in which certain writers are able to exist in this sort of realm of half knowledge. And. Sorry about that. So he, um, the, the 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 idea is you, you know you have this positive capability where you can know things and come to have sort of that absolute knowledge of them but it but it's a negative capability where you exist within this, this negation and that you can operate sort of comfortably and powerfully within that and so, so Coleridge is, is sort of one example from the the, the same era that he is sort of criticizing here. And so, Coleridge's problem overall, this, is, this isn't immediately what Keats is talking about, but as a exemplar of this, he has this long project going on, Opus Maximum, where he he's, you know, a sort of religious person and he's trying to bring together all sorts of ideas and bring sort of the Trinity in together with logic and he's working with the poet William Wordsworth to try to bring these sorts of complex philosophic ideas into poetry. And Keats is much more happy to just sort of produce works that are, that are interested in beauty and these sorts of little glimmers of truth and these sorts of realms of myth and stuff that have these spaces for uncertainty and, and so on. And, and so the, the idea, much like Cognitive Dissonance, is that you need to have this really open space where you let all sorts of different ideas through your mind and you play with them through the imagination and so on, uh, rather than trying to pursue one goal.
0: Yeah, um, and that fits in very much with the little I know about British Romanticism, which is why I was interested to speak to you, Tim, um, and, and that's that the Romantic poets were very much ruled by the passions. In effect, that's the the essence of romanticism. It's that idealized kind of um, post- or pre-rational state where the emotions um, guide you instead of logic. Would I be correct in in that?
1: Yeah, so that's one of the big things going on in this period where, you know, so the, I mean, the, the calling it, you know, Romanticism is this sort of this after- effect where, you know, coming fr- from the, the idea of medieval romance sort of thing, but within the period, one one of the defining things is in contrast again to, you know, the, the enlightenment and sort of reason, um, is this interest in the felt experience of individuals and particularly the sort of deeply idiosyncratic individual experience. And so earlier in Germany of uh, Sturm and Drang, uh, this interest in extremes of emotion. And then you get in a uh, British romanticism, the, the Wordsworthian model is that you have the spontaneous overflow of powerful emotion, but recollected in tranquility. And so it's, it's, it's tempered a bit. And it's, it's this idea of the poet of the artist as having this sort of capacity of, of genius where, you know, you go and you have these extreme emotions, you have these sorts of fits of passion, but what the poet does is finds that, you know, that that emotion and the sort of idiosyncratic forms of it and the ways in which it comes from perhaps unexpected sources and to bring that out to life for the, the reader or the viewer or whatever. And... um so the, the philosopher Alfred North Whitehead in Science in the Modern World explores this as what, what happens at this moment is what he calls the Romantic Rebellion, where it's a stark reaction to what comes before. And that, so what Wordsworth is doing is he um, feels that something is being left out in, for instance, in this Enlightenment project, and that what's being left out is what's most important. And so it's, this focus on the individual on, you know, sort of um, more everyday subjects and, and looking at the sorts of um, individual and societal periphery that is is not really in service of the sort of uh, goals of, of science broadly.
0: Instrumental reason. Right. Um so uh you know i'm living in england um as a as an, as an american gentleman tim. what was it that that drew you into british romanticism
1: um you, you know it's it's sort of interesting because it's uh not quite arbitrary but but i i did end up on it uh through what what is sort of a form of a sort of solid way of approaching things, but um a little uh, under-trained in, in a moment where, so I was, I was at a point where, where I started realizing I wanted to get like deeply into studying literature and, and research and so on. And I didn't really know what to focus on. And so I'm just like pulling together everything that I, I'm interested in. And so it was like, I really like, you know, John Milton and Paradise Lost and I like uh Southern Gothic in, in America and I like um you know I was fascinated by William Blake and his sort of like whole mythopoetic world and, and I'm like and I, I'm just like I, I it was just like this one afternoon I was I was browsing Wikipedia of like all these pages of things I liked and like trying to like triangulate like all right where's where's the nexus of all of this? And then I ended up on the British Romantic poets as like, all right, so if I study this, then like all these other things I like are like one like little pin on the, on the noteboard away. Um, and this, so I could always go back to other things that I like at some point, but, um, but yes, yeah, so, so it's sort of uh, came about like that. And then, you know, as the more I've studied it, the more I have found that, you know, actually this is this really central moment and, and that, you know, it's, it's not just, this handful of things that I happen to like you know over a decade ago that it connects to, but that it's really at the core of, of a lot of of ideas and and so you know you were saying you know you don't know British romanticism that well, but it's it's sort of one of those things where you know it it's it so infects so many things that you would know that come later.
0: Yeah, I'll ask you about your favourite books in a short while, um, Tim. But something that comes to mind is where I live um, in West Yorkshire, in England, in a town called Keithley. Literally five minutes drive away, there is Haworth, and that is where the the Brontes um, grew up and wrote their books. Um, now I'm I'm thinking that the Bronte the Brontes are kind of just a little bit out of the Romantic period, um, but I, I, in my mind, in my untutored mind, I see a connection with those earlier Romantic poets and, and the Brontes. I don't know if you know anything about that or whether I'm, I'm making sense there at all.
1: Yeah, I mean, I mean, so so periodization is sort of tricky um, where it's, you know, at, they're, they're, the whole thing in, in some ways is arbitrary where, you know, you go back, you're looking backward and for various reasons you sort of branch out like this half decade is the Romantic era. And so these are its major figures. You have the sort of big six poets and you have some uh, other writings as well, but, um, and then you have the Victorian era. And and so the, the Brontes are sort of somewhere around like the, the border of that. And then to some extent it becomes this sort of um, academic squabble of like, oh, you know, do, do the do the Romanticist or the Victorianist get to study the, the Brontes and teach the Brontes, you know? Um, but yeah, I mean, so they're definitely in keeping with a lot of stuff going on in, in the Romantic era, you know, sort of, uh, I mean, i mean, I'm talking about various things, but, you know, for, for instance, w- Wuthering Heights, you know, emerging out of uh, the elements of the Gothic tradition, elements of, you know, the sort of this hyper passionate individual um, and this idea of like haunting and so on where you have these sorts of mix of interest in the natural and supernatural. And, um, and so, yeah, so that, that's coming out of, of that, you know, uh, in, in a way that's much stronger than perhaps than some, stuff that gets a little deeper into the Victorian era. Uh, but um, yes, yeah, so, so so ultimately, uh, you know, that I think is, um, is, is how that comes in. And, and I mean, another interesting thing is with, um, from the sort of academic world is, is it's not just like, who do we get to teach, but it's also like, these sorts of control of uh, places. So if, if, you're a Victorianist and you, you get the Brontes, that means you get to study, you know, the sort of nice area where you live. Whereas if, if all you have is Charles Dickens, then like you're stuck studying, you know, late 19th century London, which is interesting in a lot of ways, but it's also sort of grimy and bleak and, and so on. And, and so, and so when, when I study William Wordsworth and, and Coleridge and stuff, you know, I get to spend a lot of time thinking about and studying like the Lake District and all the sort of beautiful scenery and so on. Um, and so I, I think that that, that y- your proximity and your interest in a, in like a location-based way is also um, sort of parts, part of what's at stake and how you think about it in terms of period. But um, but yes, yeah, so, so they're there sort of... I, I, I would tend to think of them in, in perhaps a selfish way as a sort of late romantic moment
0: yeah well I've been to the Lake District several times and it's a beautiful place um, but with the Brontes you can certainly see how Haworth affects their sensibility because it's an incredibly beautiful place up on the moors but it's inc- it's very very melancholy as well um, I love to go up there and, and you know have a little walk around even in bad weather, you know, it's, it's very, very atmospheric and brooding, but pretty at the same time. So you can see how that I- impacted on their, perhaps Gothic nature. Um, but I was just wanting to come back there to some of your favorite books, or if you had to pick a favorite book, um, what would that be, Tim?
1: Um, yes, yeah, so I, I pulled out several, probably too much, but so one is, is from the Romantic Era. So this is William Wordsworth's The Prelude. Um, And so you can see on the cover there, there's three dates, right? So 1799, he starts off. It's a a very short two book version. Um, This is is something that he had um, been sort of planning out with Coleridge or offshoots from it. So he had this larger project he wanted to work on called the recluse. And so, so, so for the context of, the, of the, the era, right, so there's the Enlightenment, and then there's also the American and French Revolution, and there's the Industrial Revolution, and so on. And so Wordsworth and Coleridge were both sort of these radicals early on. And then you have the the sort of terrors of the, of the French Revolution, and, you know, sort of various shortcomings, and then a lot of these sort of people get disillusioned. And so Wordsworth wanted to write this recluse project, which would bring some sort of sense of recompense of like, what what is a way forward for all these people who feel just completely hopeless uh, after at this stage in like the early um, 19th century. And and so it's gonna be this grand poem covering man, nature, and society. And he's like struggling with it. Coleridge is supposed to provide him a lot of the sort of philosophic basis for it. And he's kind of slacking in that regard and Wordsworth is struggling on the poetic front. And he writes chunks of it, but the prelude is something he comes to again and again as he's working on it. And it's this autobiographic epic poem. And so it emerges on the one hand out of the sort of core element of the period that uh, follows in part from Rousseau's Confessions where he, he has a sort of, you know, autobiographic writing that then gets copied by a lot of people in the romantic era. Um, But at the same time, it's within limits. And so this is actually something that Wordsworth doesn't publish in his lifetime. So even as much as we think about the romantic era, something about the experience of the individual, um, this is something that's circulating and is like immediate circle and people are liking it. It's not like he's like, oh, this is terrible. But there's something about it that's sort of just still not quite what is presumed to be the, the subject of an epic poem, that he wants to finish the larger project, which is justified by explaining the sort of grand picture of man, nature, and society. And this is just the story of the growth of the poet's mind. And so he's turning to it because he's trying to understand his own growth the and the formation of his imagination as this power that, really brings life to these things that he's trying to explore elsewhere and so so 1805 he has a long version that comes out and and that's the sort of main things that get studied and then 1850 he dies and his sister quickly publishes the the full text but um it's, it's this really great long poem that moves around through all these sort of Major formative moments of his life, and and um, you know he he gets this idea of uh, spots of time, these sorts of really intense moments that are so formative and and so sort of deeply resonant that it takes on the sort of conditions of uh, place where you can really sort of find yourself again in this place, in the sort of experience of it. And he goes through all of these sorts of different scenes. So one, for instance, is he's a child and he goes uh, by this lake and he sees a boat and he steals it. And so he's he's already sort of, you you know, we talked about the sort of heightened emotions before. So he's already sort of on edge because he's doing something sort of wrong and he's rowing along and he has this discovery about you know, the world and perception where he starts to see on the horizon, these sort these these mountains. And as he's moving away from them, they appear to be rising up over the horizon. They get seem to be getting bigger, getting closer. And because he's already on edge, he feels as if they're chasing him mm-hmm. and he's wrong and he's wrong and they're coming and they're coming. And, and it's this intense experience, um, that you know, as I was saying before, in, re- in, in recollection, he comes to understand what actually happened, and he comes to understand, you know, that it's it's not just this this unpleasant moment of the time, but it's actually this is the power of his mind to really bring life to the scene in a way which is is not being recorded elsewhere, and and so you have this this interest in in the imagination and. So Col- Coleridge distinguishes like, you know, there's, there's the general sense that everyone has where there's, there's this deep perception and then there's the secondary emotion, which is what the poetic genius has, which is that you're, you're able to create new worlds out of it. And so, so at the end of the prelude, the, the goal is that, you know, he and Coleridge and such are gonna be these, these prophets of nature that show how everyone how the mind of man it is greater than than the world on which we dwell and, and and so on and um and so he's uh he's going through all, all of these things and um and so it's 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 a sort of beautiful poem but it's also just this really fascinating exploration of of uh of life that is sort of resonant with sort of how I came into this in part which is um this other novel, which I haven't read in a long time, so I feel like hesitant to sort of say, like, oh, this is one of my favorites, but like, so this is from like, you know, in high school i read, So Look Homeward Angel by Thomas Wolfe, right? And so this is one of the key points for how I, you know, even came to studying Wordsworth is it's this long novel that covers his whole life. Uh, It starts, you know, it's a sort of semi-autobiographic novel. It starts before he was born and it goes through to like around when he's 18 and leaves home. And and so what I really liked with this was just it, it goes really in depth through all these different stages and brings sort of life to how he thinks at different times and, and the sort of emotions at different times. And particularly like was really impressed with these sort of depictions of uh, childhood toward the middle of the book where... It's something that I feel like doesn't get um, captured properly well enough, often enough. Where um, usually depictions of childhood are in relatively childish books, and and so a lot gets sort of glossed over in a way. Um, but but what happens with Wordsworth is this interest in this sort of youth as actually this this very rich formative moment in life that's really distinct. And, and so this is what I was saying, where, you know, even if you're not familiar, super familiar with romanticism, um, you, you have this sort of ongoing resonance where this, is uh, this is a moment where things like childhood are starting to really be understood as this distinct life stage in a way that we now take for granted. But they were really sort of just figure this out. And so Wordsworth's, Poetry was, is, is a really sort of major moment in this in really thinking through the, you know, the way people learn from, you know, just sort of natural experiences, the way people learn from these sort of formative moments and things and what that really looks like, the, the way that it shapes this sort of more hard, hard to depict uh, power of the imagination and so on, and and so that's one core thing. Um, and then uh, to maybe bring things ahead a bit, so this is uh, the Cyber Gypsies by Indra Sinha, and this is uh something I feel is a, is a deeply underread uh, work where. So, Indra Sinha got sort of famous where um, he wrote in 2007, Animals People. And so, so Animals People is the story of uh, Bhopal, India, is the sort of slum area that in, uh, I think that the 80s um, American company builds a pesticide plant. On the sort of outskirts of the, of this the city, and and then so you have the sort of slums and the sort of outskirts as well, and and then there's a accident at the pesticide plant. It wasn't sort of up to code, and chemicals leak out into the slums, and it causes a lot of deaths, a lot of you know terrible experiences, and then also extending through generations. And so animals people is about. This sort of next generation person who grows up physically deformed, and so he's, he's called animal because he walks around on all fours, his, his spine's all twisted, and and uh, so the the story is about you know they're opening this like free clinic there, and animal's really sort of um, streetwise and sort of wary of all of this, but it comes from some of Indra Sinha's own life experiences where he, he was an ad man and he did this campaign to fund an actual free clinic in Bhopal. And, and so people are are, are really interested in the animals, people depiction of it, but the cyber gypsies is a memoir from 1999 that goes through his, his experiences in the early nineties Starting out on this sort of uh just sort of online addiction, playing multi user dungeons and, and these sort of fantastical worlds uh, leading into his work his advocacy work eventually for things like the 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 bhopal chemical disaster and and so so to to maybe connect this through a bit, so one of the things that really excited me with it was that he actually traces things back a bit to, from the British Romantic era, Samuel Taylor Coleridge and Thomas De Quincey. So he says that these were the sort of primary ancestors of the cyber gypsies. The, so the cyber gypsies are these people who are sort of deeply online, you know, in the, the sort of early 90s internet. And, you know, they're, they're traveling around the world, chasing these sorts of hot spots of activity where there's you know it's not like now where there's like constant high activity everywhere all the time um but you know that that there's there's certain you know people go to sleep and wake up and there's there's little slivers of time in each time zone that's like high activity and so these people just sort of you know they're, they're they have they're up all night and they're chasing these sorts of moments of high activity and and so he says that um, Coleridge and De Quincey, in their depiction of the imagination and so on, uh, particularly as you know, they, they were both addicted to opium, um, and, and that that sort of ad- addictive sense that you get through poems like Kubla Khan and 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 so on, is sort of anticipating the sort of virtuality of cyberspace and the addictiveness of that sort of virtual experience and, and the way in which it allows you to like slip into these other sorts of uh, subjectivities and so on. Uh, and, you know, it's, it's an interesting maneuver because you already have the sort of cyberpunk movement, which is thinking about, um, you know, the, the sort of the virtual and relationship to sort of, drugs and so on, this idea that, you know, you know, it's, it's a big thing in like Gibson and so on that, like, you know, you need to uh, take all these drugs to like deal with like the, the craziness of cyberspace, but he he's connecting it into this romantic tradition uh, because one of the things that he is tracing through this memoir is similar to Wordsworth, the growth of his imagination, where what starts out as these idle fantasies playing around you know these sort of like violent um, multi-user dungeons you know so, some of them are um, not really so so action oriented they're more social but like the, the one he was into is called shades it's one of the more sort of uh action violence oriented ones and and so he's really into that and and then but but what he finds is that it wasn't this sort of waste for him that actually that it was it was training his imagination in a way, to understand these sorts of global connections, to understand the these things which are not sort of readily visible uh, that become then core to understanding um, you know things like what's going on across the world in Bhopal, and to understand things like you have these these sorts of invisible, long-term effects tracing from this disaster in the 80s to all of a sudden still in the, the 2000s that people are being born with these these issues that arise out of this earlier moment. Um, and uh, before I think we transition off of romanticism, I just want to throw out w- one basic distinction from M.H. Uh, Abrams. So he has this idea of the mirror and the lamp, right? So that, that what comes before is, is art and poetry as a sort of mirror held up to the world, you know, sort of Plato critiques poetry as mimesis. Um, and then by the 18th century that the, they're still thinking of it as sort of mimesis, but they have a loftier idea of what that means. Uh, and that what the romantics are doing is, is the, more like a lamp that it's illuminating outwardly the inner um, and outer experience of the individual to reveal these sorts of new visionary worlds and possibilities. And, and so that, that's sort of core, I think, to, to what really excited me through th- these works is you really get to see, um, you dive into the sort of personal experiences of these individuals. And it's not just that it has, um, some value. So so there's the, the outward value that, you know, so Sinha learns how to do advocacy work and it helps, the material conditions of these people in India, but what's also really fascinating about it is that it gives in the process, he's also giving this beautiful literary depiction of the experience of being online, computer use, and so on that I haven't really found a quite an equivalent of anywhere. So this is, this is one of my favorites in that it's, it, it, it um, gives a language to, you know, what is now a very common experience in a, in a way that despite being from 1999, I think in in, so, in some passages hasn't been topped. Mm-hmm. And, and so, so that's, that's, I think one of the, the things that's really exciting about literature is that, you know, we have these experiences and so you, you have, you know, the, the sort of use model of like, you know, something like what Facebook will be like, all right, so here's this form, you fill it out and that's you. Um, But then there's also the the whole world of like, what is your actual experience, you know, going on using this device, using these platforms, interacting with all these different individual people and, and these assemblages and so on and and that, you know, is, is harder to measure, but what literature does is it gives us in sort of glimpses into that world, and it gives us a language for our experiences, which um, really sort of brings life and enhances it. And it's not just about conversational, but it's about, you know, similar to what I was saying before, that like, you know, before this, the, the Romantic era, like, people didn't think of childhood as we do now. And it's not just from the poetry, but it's a big part of it. Um, you know that it 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 really just can change the the world to some extent.
0: Yeah, um, and I can certainly see how your description there of the cyber gypsies how how that links in with uh, what I picked up from watching some of your uh, your online content recently, where it seems that two of the main themes there are that liminal space at the early days of the internet and also how modern technologies um you know constant online communication mobile phones how they impact on narrative that'd be fair to say
1: yeah um so so the the latter is sort of how i got into this initially where you know, I, I mean, so basically, initially, I just had this idea where I've I'd been studying, you know, like 19th century British literature and so on. I hadn't been reading a lot of contemporary stuff. And so now all of a sudden, we're in t- like a few years into the 2010s. And, you know, I spent a lot of time online as do a lot of people now. And and so I just imagined, um, you know, by like the early 2010s, like you have smartphones and stuff now, people are like online all the time. And so I imagine that any contemporary novel I pick up, there's a strong likelihood that, you know, people would have computers and cell phones and they'd be chatting and doing, you know, whatever sorts of things. And and it, then it, you know, quickly realized it's not the case and that it's actually very rare. And that what happens in contemporary literature is, Um, various, various maneuvers, either you'll have, um, a growing trend toward historical fiction where you you look at, you know, you you have like a lot of major novels in recent times. It's like looking back at like the 1920s or something, uh, or you'll just have something that's like relatively contemporary setting, but, um, it's sort of not really deeply online for whatever reason, you know, maybe at one point. Someone will check an email or something, but it's not the the sort of constant presence where people will walk around all day. you have the phone in your pocket, and you're going through your day and all of a sudden like it, it makes a sound or buzzes or something and, and then you, now your attention is drawn away from your surroundings, into this device, into the the sort of wider world that it connects you out to, and that you're in. These sorts of uh, broader imaginative spaces through through this device um, all the time and and the way in which it it impacts the sort of narratives that we can tell and this, this is sort of part of why I think writers avoid it is if you have um, and and so I'm drawing it in part from other people here so, so Joshua Cohen writes about this at times where you know, he was saying, like, the, he says the Victorian novel is built on these elements of chance encounters where people will wander about the city and the the there's this tension in the novel that the reader knows about where there's two characters mm-hmm. and at some point they have to come together, but maybe that, you know, things keep coming up or they, they miss each other or all of a sudden someone dies and it's like, oh, I have to go off and to the countryside and do this. And it's delaying the, this this satisfaction that the whole novel is built on. But what happens now in this era of hyper communication and hyper connectivity is um, you know, either one person can just sort of text the other, like, oh hey, you know, uh but by the way, like, you know, you know there's this sort of plot where it's like, these two characters are in love, but they don't know it because they're at a distance. And then in the meantime, like one person is like, oh, whatever. And then they get married and, and so on. Right. But if, if, if they could just be like texting, like, oh man, I miss you so much. I love you. I love you. You know, that's not going to happen, you know, because the timescale has completely changed now versus okay. travel and letters and so on. Um, But, but what's with what the thing with hyper, connectivity as well, is that there's also machines communicating. So even if you don't have this direct communication for whatever reason, say these people are, are, you know, angry at each other, or they think there's some sort of complication or whatever, um, you have like social media feeds, and you have, um, you know, news feeds, and you have like other people learning things through different feeds, and then communicating it out in different ways and, and so you can find things in that way um, that, that are not as real, real, real available for characters in, in like say, a 19th century novel. And, and so you, you, you want to avoid incorporating these elements of technology into your story uh, because it completely changes sort of what you can do narratively, but what you miss out on in not including that is, um, is, is, is giving sort of life to the sort of world we live now. And, and particularly in this Wordsworthian sense where I was talking about, you know, he wants to offer something up that is useful for people feeling dejected after like the French Revolution and so on. And... I think at some point you mentioned uh, in a a different interview, uh, being a fan of John Stuart Mill at one point, right? And so, you know, in the Victorian era, you know, people like him were really into Wordsworth as the sort of therapeutic figure where he had really sort of achieved some of what he set out to do, which is that Mill talks about, you know, being in this, this constant depression, and that through Wordsworth he found there there could be this real permanent happiness through tranquil contemplation. And that he's reading Wordsworth and he he gradually his his depression is gone, never to return again. And and so that's the that's the sort of thing that, that comes from this really sort of deep artistic exploration of things that I think is um you know, there, there's a sort of, you know, over the 2010s, one of the things I track is that you start to have some changes in that. It starts to become more common, but in avoiding that broadly, that you're missing out on those sorts of opportunities for bringing something of real value to people. Um And, and but one of the things interesting in the early internet, which I, I, explore in part because uh, I've been studying in particular the sort of what's called electronic literature, the sort of computer based writing things like interactive fiction or, or hypertext, you know, you have like those early computer games where it's all text based and it's like a description of a thing, you know, you encounter this building and it's got this red door with a owl on it. And, and then you have a command prompt and, you know, you could be like, Oh, use, red owl key on door or maybe you know you don't have that and you so you're like all right go west and now you're on like the side of the building and you're like all right throw rock at window um and 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 so this is this is the sort of the sort of text-based world is what indra sinha writes about being addicted to um and and the fact that it's text-based and that i study literature and writing and so on is, is partly an excitement where uh, my sort of skill set is more immediately relevant to thinking about, you know, this world and what is sort of produced within it. But um, it's it's also this this really, I think, deeply romantic moment where you have these sort of similar utopian impulses going on. And Uh, so if you look for instance at, um, uh, what is it? Fred Turner has this book like from counterculture to cyberculture where he traces the, the sort of early cyber cyber cyberculture of the 1990s back through to the sort of like hippie movements of the 1960s and so on. And, you know, in some ways you could trace, uh, some of the impulses there, Back to writers like Wordsworth and Blake and, and Shelley and and, what, and so on, um, but but also you know in the early 1960s you have Ted Nelson planning out one of the first hypertext projects, um, something that never really quite manifests on, on a completed large scale, and so eventually we would say we get the World Wide Web, but his his project. Uh, he called Project Xanadu after Coleridge's Kubla Khan, which begins uh, in Xanadu did Kubla Khan a stately pleasure dome decree, and so the poem is something where Coleridge says he he wrote something like three hundred something lines in a dream, with the composition appearing to him as images and so on, and that he woke up and he starts writing out this poem. And he gets, you know, a sort of fraction of the way through when someone knocks at his door and interrupts him and he goes and he answers the door and then he sits back down to write again. And the rest of the poem is gone from his mind. And so Ted Nelson calls his project Xanadu because it's this magical place of literary memory and that the the goal is to map out, um, connections in, in literature in a a broader sort of scientific sense, you know, like the literature on such and such, um, where it all becomes available and interlinked. And so you read, you can read, for example, he, he talks about like, um, he, you know, he gives an example and there's a line that's from like the King James Bible, and so then you could have in a parallel strand the King James Bible, and you can see the connection and it's it's like spatializing the sort of connective threads and spatializing um our associative forms of thinking and and so in in this early era, this is coming from the sort of romantic tradition, and um But what happens in the sort of history of this technology is it becomes through the information revolution, I think really parallel to what's going on through the enlightenment and the industrial revolution where what is actually getting built and sent out to consumers and that is sort of dominating the globe is built around things like business practices and so on you know, so so we're having this conversation over over Zoom, for instance. And so even though we're we're trying to you know have this literary discussion, we're using this program which is designed for you know business board meetings and so on. Um, and then eventually they they encounter this large educational market and they start adapting features for that. But you know all these things that we're, we're using. are are often built around, um, you know, business purposes, scientific purposes, military purposes. And so one of the interesting things within, you know, early computer-based writers and things like that is looking at these sorts of, um, counter possibilities in, uh, I think a very romantic way, um, thinking about, human memories, thinking about sort of, uh, sort of psychological depths, thinking about, um, the depictions uh, of, of the, the body, for instance. So Shelley Jackson, uh, writes one of, this is famous early hypertext work, um, which maybe I should define. So like hypertext fiction is distinct from like a traditional novel where you have a linear sequence of pages, so hypertext fiction instead is this sort of you know there's a l- page which is called Alexia, and there's a page and there's a page and there's all these pages, and they have these different linking structures through them, and so you navigate it in a more open nonlinear manner and and so what Shelley Jackson does early on is thinks about it in terms of you know the the possibility of thinking through like the memory for one and also like the body where Uh, what she does first is, is this thing based around Frankenstein where in the novel, he, the guy, he makes this sort of male creature and then the, the creature reads Paradise Lost and he becomes, becomes obsessed with this idea is he needs his Eve. He thinks, you know, this is just like the, the nature of things that, you know, God created Adam and then God made Adam and Eve because Adam was lonely and and so he he demands that his creator Victor Frankenstein make him this sort of female mate and he does and he's about to bring her to life and then he sort of realizes it's a mistake and he just starts tearing the body to shreds and and this this kicks off the sort of second half of the novel where you know the the creature goes crazy and murderous and so on um but But patchwork girl, Shelly Jackson goes back and and thinks through, you know, what if actually Mary Shelley herself went back and like pieced back together this female monster and they have this, this relationship and and so on. Uh, But, but the construction of the body is set up in parallel with the reader trying to piece together all these disparate parts of the narrative. Right. And so, then Shelley Jackson goes later and, and models this for herself in this sort of semi-autobiographic t- tale where you have like a picture of her body, It's like drawing, what's like a drawing of it. And you can click around like, oh, this is like the elbow. Let me see what she writes about that. Let me see what she writes about the eyes. Which? What does she write about her legs, um, her breasts, whatever. And it's it's this tale about you know, the sort of coming of age tale in some ways about like, you know, growing up and coming to understand herself through her body, you know, not just in sexual ways, but also things like, um, this uh, period of obsession where she realized that if she really thought about it, she could see this faint pink blur that's her nose, um, when she's looking at things. And so whenever she would, do it like a drawing or a painting or whatever, she would think like, oh, I need to include that pink blur of the nose in the middle of it. Cause that's what I'm seeing. And, and thinking through the, those sorts of, um, ideas of perception that are, that are based around the body and our memories, you know, embodied within it and so on. And that this, this, in this early era of the, the internet and computers and so on, um, you have this general shift, but you also have this artistic possibility to shape this into new forms of narrative, new forms of community, which do better at serving uh, these sorts of concerns and these sorts of ideas and and, and so on. And so this, this is something that was a big thing in the, the Romantic era, where there is this idea that, you know, this whole new version of the universe was suddenly possible. And that, you know, what had been before was never gonna be again, and so they could they could shape something new. And so we, we're sort of in a similar moment, but in a lot of ways, what's exciting about, you know, looking back to like around the 90s and so on, is this was a moment where there actually was still a lot possible, um, and then things get sort of locked in And so you can have reforms and changes now and develop new tools and so on. But, you know, in, in large part, you know, where, where it, you know, stuck in whatever the world wide web looks like, stuck in whatever, you know, sort of smartphones as popularized tend us to be able to do and so on.
0: Um, Yeah, that, I, I can really connect with that idea of the early internet because it's going to make me. This is going to show my age, but I, I didn't actually use the internet until I was sixteen, at a friend's house, and that was on fifty-six k dial-up. I didn't have a mobile phone until I was twenty-one, um, and I'm kind of glad that um, I'm glad that um, I, I didn't have those technologies until that age. In a way, um, you know, my own kid to try and keep them off of screens and things, but they do enjoy playing with them. Um, But coming into what you were saying there about the internet offering opportunities, um, obviously you yourself have taken advantage of those opportunities by setting up your own course about the the literature of the sea, and I'd be interested to just hear a little bit more about that.
1: Yeah, um, I mean, so this is basically Uh, Something that I had been interested in reading before and I'd been like sort of accumulating books and starting to read a little bit, but not really getting a deep dive into it just yet. And so, uh, you know, I mean, I had been interested in in sort of teaching online and things like that. And so I did the, over the summer, this like free um, 10 weeks. Course of like study through this like blog sequence where uh, studying the sort of connection between literature and hyperconnectivity and you know wanting to do something more formal where it's an actual like course where people are reading and we're studying things together and there's you know this direct sort of communication um, but basically so the the Hyperlink Academy was launching these like learning clubs and this seemed like a, a really good sort of low stakes way of experimenting with uh, something like that, where it's this co-learning model. And so rather than me having to, you know, prepare long lectures and record and edit and, and stuff that takes, you know, way more time than you would expect. It's, you know, we're reading together and discussing and I'll, I'll be doing a little, extra reading, um, and in terms of like context and, and sort of theory and stuff and, and trying to bring some insights into the the group. But, you know, for the main part with the literature is we're all just reading the same stuff for 12 weeks. And so this is something I got into in a couple ways. I mean, one is I was interested in the sea is this, this sort of really interesting space where, you know, we have these sort of undersea cables that like allow our connections. And at the same time, it's this like relatively unknown world that we don't actually know that much about the deep sea compared to like what we know about the earth and even space in, in some ways. Um, and, and so it's, it's this really fascinating thing where, you know, as you go back through history, the sea is sort of so central to everything. And I was, as I was putting together the sequence uh, of readings into what eventually became 12 weeks, it's like it starts to become almost the a very reasonable history of literature, you know, going from Homer to, you know, Shakespeare and the rise of the novel and major poetry and modernism and, and so on uh, up into the, the sort of computer-based electronic literature stuff I was talking about, you know, and, and that's that's another thing that I was really, that really sort of drove this interest is interesting work um, in that, that sphere looking at the sort of C, uh, particularly by, by J.R. Carpenter is one of the sort of per- people most deeply working on stuff like this. Um, but there's a lot of really interesting works about this. And there's something I wanted to read more about and flesh out the sort of core foundation of reading where, you know, it's like, if, if you want to really think about this seriously, you know, you want to have at least, you know, some familiarity with, you know, Moby Dick for instance. Um, and so, you know, you need to read some of that. And, and so, you know, I mean, so for me, this is, this is about, you know, I want to really develop like a working knowledge of just so sort of riding around this, uh, to give sort of life and language to this sort of world that exists, um, in some ways that are periphery, but in some ways at the sort of deep core, um, of our, of our existence. And, you know, what, what other people can get from it is, is, you know, a lot of things, but I think, you know, basically there's the sort of practical end of things, which is that uh I'll be you know trying to signal in really productive ways the 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 whole process of like how we're going through this sequence and the connections between them, and and so you know you you'd get a, a really broad sense of literary history and this sort of topic within literary history, and you'd also get a sort of strong sense of how sort of humanistic knowledge is, is developed you know this idea of like the the way in which we imagine the sea as depicted through literature you know what does it mean to really understand that and how do you sort of develop that through just reading like a dozen works um, but but also uh, you know these the sort of broader edifying ideas of, you know, there's just like a lot of beautiful works to really learn about and appreciate and the ways in which that the sea as structuring perhaps existence in a philosophic sense, you know, this is sort of, I'm not entirely serious when I mention like the Thales, the beginning of the course description, but you know, there is this idea, this foundational philosophic idea that like water is the core essence of all existence, Uh, but but also that it just becomes this structuring force in literature and, you know, the idea of like a stream of consciousness or the the sea as this sort of space of thinking and, and being outside of our normal sort of landlocked perspective, that it, it opens up these sorts of distinct possibilities. And and see, so I think there's really a lot to really get out of a deep dive into that sort of world and how it's been depicted through literature.
0: Well, oh, that all sounds really fascinating and, and, and very romantic, the way that you put that uh, about the sea being, the heart of everything, and water being at the heart of everything of our very existence um, so we've been talking for about an hour now, Tim. Um, I feel like we've had a really good deep a uh, good little chat there about romanticism and how that came out of uh, negative capability um, segueing through um, the uh, cyber gypsies. And then into those modern disruptions and then finally into those opportunities that present themselves through the internet in terms of studying literature today Um, i mean i'm looking forward to studying the particular syllabus that you're preparing but um, when i think of the sea i think of works like Stanislav Lems Solaris H.B. Love's The Shadow Over Innsmouth, uh, Moby Dick, although I haven't read Moby Dick, that's that's on my next to read actually. Um, various other things, you know, films like The Lighthouse, I don't know if you've seen that came out last year. Yeah. And so I'm, I'm really looking forward to studying that. Um, so I don't know if you've got any final comments or anything that you'd like to make there. Tim, if you feel comfortable wrapping up.
1: Uh, sure. I mean, also, I'd, you know, one last comment on the course is You know, so so there will be, you know, some recent works, but also part of the idea is developing a broad foundational knowledge through, you know, looking at various moments and styles and concerns around the sea that, you know, so that in the future you can go and, like, read a lot of these sort of contemporary things like Solaris and more recent things like The Lighthouse and appreciate them in a sort of newer depth, uh, and, and so so the the focus is, is uh, even broader. And hopefully, people will find that very sort of valuable. Um, in closing, you know, I don't know. I mean, I've taken on this sort of uh, view um, posting where this is a very optimistic view around poetry that like the best is, is yet to come where, uh, you know, as I, I was seeing, you know, some people talking about like, you know, that, like, you know, we'll, we'll be really let down. This, this is, uh, uh, Rowan Phillips, who was, who was a professor of mine in uh interview with someone was saying like, you know, if we don't walk away from the sort of moment with like a great epic, we'll be really let down. Um, and then, you know, at the same time, you know, seeing the sense of like a growing interest in poetry, um, that I, that I, th- and and in particular in, in things like the epic, you know. So pe- people talk about, for instance, that poetry is now more read than ever, uh, and looking at book sales and things like um, Ruby Kaur, um, which I don't I don't want to get t- too deep into, but. I mean, one of the, the really sort of cynical points there is that a major reason people are buying her books is something like, more like self-help than, than traditional poetry sales. And, and so self-help is one of the biggest selling book genres, and then poetry is one of the least selling. And so all of a sudden, the, the way we, we categorize books is like, if you take this low selling tag, and you tack it onto something that's like from here, all of a sudden you're the the number one thing in this lower selling tag, right. uh, and and so that it seems like that this sales of poetry are skyrocketing, um, but but I do think there's a, a genuine growing interest in really sort of um, th- these sorts of depths of what poetry can offer in an imaginative sense in in forms like the epic and, and things like that, and I think that um, there's a lot. To look forward to um, in the future, and and so uh, on my website, you know, usually when I talk about things like literature writing about digital technology, I'll tag it, you know, literature yet to come, uh, because it, thinking of it as as very interesting in its own right, but also this ghost of the sort of future that we can sort of vaguely sense through reading these sorts of early works that are touching on these things where eventually we're going to have a really rich selection of works that give this broad sense of the world that we're living in now in all of its sort of complexity that, um, really it's it's sporadic now, but I think in the the future, perhaps even the near future, we're going to have a really sort of rich literary tradition brewing in that direction.
0: Is that something that you might want to have a hand at trying yourself, uh, Tim, writing that novel of the hyperconnected
1: age? Uh, I mean, yeah, I I do work on some writing occasionally. Uh, I don't know, I I, I get a little caught up obsessing in planning stages and and so on, but I I am trying to write occasionally. Uh, I, I got caught up in one project that I got a little self-conscious about where it's like a almost a sort of immediate sequel to um, Frankenstein focused on the the character Walton as the sea captain uh, but then but then I start getting uh, self-conscious where it's like oh man but but I'm, I'm the person who's out there saying like but we need we need to stop doing all these historical novels and do the hyperconnectivity novel and and so on uh, but you know, I guess that, that's, how, that's how that happens in some ways, because people like these these old classics and they want to write works like them. But you know, we'll, we'll get there.
0: Great. Well, uh, I think that's a nice note to end on. Um, I look I look forward to studying the course with you, and I, I hope um, hope everyone enjoys this. I think it's been a great discussion. I've really learned about um, some more about the. Um, British Romantics, and I look, I look forward to uh, the course as well. So, uh, thanks a lot for your time, Tim. I'll thanks for having me. Meet you again sometime. I'll see you soon.